0: Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. Happy Father's Day to the fathers among us. I hope it's a special family day for each of our families. Our verse for this morning is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. It fits well with the theme of Father's Day. We're making our way slowly through the book of Deuteronomy. Currently, we're taking the Ten Commandments one at a time. This morning, we're focused on the fifth command. It's on the screen, Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. There we read, honor your father and mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, rather than focus on how we can keep this command, I'd like to talk about why we should keep this command. Regardless of one's age, honoring our parents involves things like listening closely to them offering gentle responses to them, making caring efforts toward them. And at different stages and for different reasons, that may go easily for us. It may be difficult for us at times. Uh, But I feel like we often know how we're to honor our folks. Uh, I find most of us know what it is that we should be doing. But we may sometimes be fuzzier on why we should do it. Why should we honor our mother and father? What does it matter to God that we would esteem our parents? To answer this question, we need to assess our theology of family. What is your theology of family? That question might sound funny to some. Don't let the word theology throw you. Theology simply means God thoughts, which means that we're all theologians to some degree because... We all have opinions on what God is up to in the world. We all have God thoughts. We have our perspective on what God's doing, why he's doing it in the world. So when I ask, what is your theology of the family? What I want us to wrestle with is, for what purpose do you believe God created the family? What is the divinely ordained function of mom and dad? Now, admittedly, when I started in ministry some 28 years ago now, answering that question was not terribly controversial. In fact, when I started in ministry uh, 28 years ago, both of America's political parties defined marriage as solely between a man and a woman. Today, there are all types of opinions, all types of opinions about the nature of and the purpose of the family. Of course, we learn from the first two chapters in the Bible that God designed the family for a particular purpose. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to the first chapter in the Bible. Should be easy enough to find. Genesis chapter one. We can glean a theology from of the family from the first two chapters in the Bible. And I'm just going to jump around a little in Genesis 1 and 2. So Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, there we read, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, plural, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. These two verses are packed with lots of important theological truths. For example, from these two verses, we learn that all people are created in God's image. We're image bearers, each of us, we're stewards. We've been given a charge to rule over, subdue the earth. We have gifts and time, we have talents, treasure that we're to bring to bear on our stewardship responsibilities. And there are two genders. And these genders are the means by which the earth is to be filled. In the subjugation of the earth, or the ruling over the earth, the stewardship responsibilities are to be carried out. Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful together, they were to increase in number biologically. And through that biological increase in number, they were going to rule over the earth. They were going to subdue it. Toward that end, God the Father ordained the one flesh union between a man and a woman as the very backbone of social order. At the close of the creation narrative, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we read, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother And hold fast to his wife, leave and cleave, it's often referred to. Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The two become one. Now, this is not to say that you have to be married or that you have to have children to be image bearers or to fulfill your stewardship responsibilities. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, we realize that we're image bearers, and that we're, we're commissioned to steward, to rule over and subdue. In chapter 2, there's a, a wedding ceremony. God gives, gives away the first bride. He, he, uh, he officiates the first wedding between Adam and Eve, and, and then he, he commissions this one flesh union in the marriage. But you don't have to be married to be an image bearer or to be a steward. You don't have to have children to be an image bearer or to be a steward. My point solely is that you have to be alive. My point is only that families created through biological reproduction was God's idea. In other words, marriage, parenting, sibling relationships, grandparenting for that matter, the extended family experience of aunts and uncles and cousins, all God's idea. In fact, Jesus restates as much when asked about the permissibility of divorce. Jesus is, we're fast forwarding to the New Testament. Jesus is ministering. A part of that ministry is teaching. He's questioned about Moses' uh, allowance for divorce. And Jesus's response is on the screen. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, the nature of marriage between a man and a woman, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, the one flesh union. So they're no longer two but one. In God's economy, one plus one equals one. Biblical math is really odd. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. It's a one flesh union, right? Till death do they part. So why should we honor moms and dads? Why keep the fifth commandment? Why is it important? Well, at least part of that answer is because the roles were created by God. The roles were created by God to help us live as image bearers and good stewards of creation. Marriage was his idea. Family was his idea. Biblical, uh, biological reproduction was his idea so that the, the subjugation of the earth and the stewardship could happen. In fact, in Genesis 2, we learn more about what the activity of ruling and subduing was to entail as God's original purposes for mankind were further described in Genesis chapter 2. It's on the screen. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And I underline there on the screen, work and care. It sounds pretty straightforward. He creates the garden, he creates uh man and woman, he officiates over the first wedding, he places in, them in the garden and they're gonna work there. They're gonna care for the garden. They're gonna rule, subdue, they're in the garden. The experience for humanity in the garden, in other words, wasn't simply, I like to say, hammocks and margaritas. We think of the garden, and rightly so, to a certain extent, as as a paradise. We look back on it, oh, that we weren't outside the garden, which we are now. Oh, that we were in the garden, God's paradise. But it wasn't what we picture in in how we often picture paradise, which is, you know, the sandy beach and laying in a hammock and relaxing, vacation, Basically. Humanity was to be active in the garden, working and caring for it. This means that work is a good thing. Work is not a bad thing. Humanity is, in fact, made to work. We're made to work. It's in work that we do what we're commissioned to do, that we live as image bearers, that we find our place in stewarding creation, that we represent him and bring glory to him and experience his joy using our talents and our gifts and abilities. But what is particularly interesting is that the words translated as work and care in verse 15 stem from two Hebrew verbs, which are later used to describe the spiritual service performed by the Levites in the tabernacle. Follow me here. In Genesis 2.15, in the creation narrative, Adam and Eve are placed in the garden and they're told to work and care for it. They're there to work and care. They're to steward, rule and subdue it. Well, the, the the root stems of these Hebrew words, work and care, are later used to describe the Levitical priesthood and their activities in the temple. There were 12 tribes in Israel. One of the tribes, the Levites, were commissioned. Their sole purpose was, was to care for the tabernacle, that place of worship, the sacred space where God met with his people, the temple later on. In the same root words used to describe what Adam and Eve were doing in the garden are used to describe the priestly work in the tabernacle. Why does that matter? It means that the activities, whatever they were that Adam and Eve were doing, it wasn't simply that they were trimming hedges or tilling soil, no. Their work was a priestly work. Humanity's work in the garden was an act of worship. Adam and Eve were in sacred space. That is the space that God inhabited with them. He walked in the garden with them. We know from Genesis chapter 3 at the opening to the fall narrative. His presence among them, they're working it, they're caring for it, they're learning to rule and subdue the earth, they're managing the garden, and that's all worship-filled work activities, priestly activities before God. And it's not just that Adam and Eve were to be priests, all of their descendants would have been the same. Have you ever wondered what might have happened if Adam and Eve had never disobeyed God, if this morning, we were in the garden. If Adam and Eve hadn't disobeyed and been ushered out of the garden, wh- how would that have worked? I think it only stands to reason that through the working and the caring, those priestly activities, those worship filled activities, that the borders of the garden would have been extended, families would have been multiplied, they would have been fruitful. There'd be aunts and uncles and grandparents and more marriages in the garden. They would have carried on their tasks, and the garden would have expanded, and humanity would have expanded, and the presence of God would have been enjoyed by all. Eve's role in the garden is defined in verse 18 as that of a suitable helper for Adam. At the end of each created, uh, each creation event, at the end of each day, there's a benediction. It is good, it is good, it is good. One thing was bad in the garden, perhaps you remember the one maldiction, bad word, the one thing that wasn't right in the garden, it's not good for Adam to be alone. So God puts Adam to sleep, takes part of the material flesh of Adam and forms Eve as a suitable helper for Adam to help him in his worship Filled work, this priestly activity, whatever they were of working and caring, ruling, subduing. Eve's given to Adam for this one flesh union to be his helper in these efforts. And I should note that to be the helper is not meant as a demeaning term, it doesn't suggest lesser status or lesser importance. It's a reflection of her ability, in fact, to provide what is lacking in Adam. Something was not right with Adam, and she brings it. In fact, the same Hebrew word for helper, Eve is the suitable helper for Adam. This same word is used 21 times in the Old Testament, 15 of which describe God's help for humanity. God is the suitable helper for humanity. Described in the same way that Eve is described in helping Adam. Adam. So it's not a demeaning, it's not a less than role. Eve specifically, marriage generally is a gift from God to all humanity for the purpose of supporting and encouraging lives of worship. God gives Adam and Eve to one another to help accomplish the worship-filled tasks of working and caring in the garden. So again, why should we honor father and mother's At least part of the answer is because the roles were created by God to help us us live as worshipers in the world, which includes activities of engagement, they're to work and care, but also activities of abstinence. Do these things, work, care, rule, subdue, be fruitful, multiply. Adam and Eve, given to one another. Their progeny, their descendants, would have been about the same activities of engagement, expanding the garden's borders, bringing more worship-filled work. Glory to God. But there was an activity of abstinence, something they were not to engage in, something they were to avoid. It's not just activities of engagement, but there's also something they're to abstain from. In verse 16, we read it. It's well known. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. There to work, care, rule, subdue, priestly activities of worship, do these things, don't do this. A life of worship still includes engaging in activities that bring God glory, finding our place of stewarding the gifts we've been given, bringing Him glory, knowing His joy, as well as abstaining from prohibitive activities. Our setting is much different now, but that's still what it means to be an image bearer, to engage in the activities that we've been directed to and abstain from those who we've been told to abstain from. So here's my theology of the family. The marriage relationship, and by extension the family, was designed by God to empower us for lives of worship, which include activities of both engagement and abstinence as image bearers. Now, you may be thinking, well, that, that was not at all my family experience. If your family didn't empower you as an image bearer, to live a life of worship, I can completely understand that. We are outside the garden. We live in a a sin-filled world. Sin affects our families. I'd go so far as to say you're certainly not alone in this room. I know, in fact, that there are, are many families that actually encourage lives of disobedience the engagement in the activities that we're to abstain from and the abstinence from activities that we're to engage in. The truth is that my understanding of theology of family to fuel worship-filled activities, it wasn't even that for very long for Adam and Eve. We don't know how long they were in the garden, but it went bad at one point The first marriage relationship soon faltered. Only three chapters into the redemptive story, the narrative of history. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve disobey God, engaging in the very activity that they were to abstain from. By eating the forbidden fruit, they bear the consequences of being ushered out of the garden where they are still charged as image bearers to steward the earth. Rule, subdue it, and it gets a lot harder really quickly. Once outside the garden, they begin to have children to fruitfully increase. Remember, they're still to increase. They're still to rule and subdue. They found themselves outside the garden and that their priestly function did not come near as easily anymore. They're still to live for God's glory, His goodness, just as we are today. But sin was in the world. Activities didn't go near as easily. In fact, in chapter four, you could say all hell breaks loose. And the, the theology of the family that I just presented completely breaks down. The family, once intended by God to be the fuel for ruling and subduing, for working and carrying the garden, becomes a place of Murder as the firstborn son Cain takes the life of Abel. If you know the story well, Genesis 4, it's actually over sacrifices being made. That is worship-filled activities. It's a worship war. Cain's discouraged that his sacrifice wasn't received. He didn't follow the directions as he was supposed to, apparently. He gets angry at Abel, whose sacrifice was received. God warns him to get his anger under control but he lashes out. And the family becomes a hub, not for worship-filled encouragement, but for crime, discouragement. If you're thinking that your family is dysfunctional, you are not alone. If you feel as though you missed out on God's design for family, don't despair. God in his kindness has provided for us and eternal family. The good news of the gospel is that God has acted on our behalf to redeem our family relationships. Look at how the author of Hebrews, New Testament book, outlines the impact of Christ's death and resurrection, and notice that he uses family relationships to talk about the impact that Jesus has had upon our lives. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 both the one who makes people holy, it's Christ who makes us holy, and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them family members, brothers and sisters. The verbiage used to describe those who are being saved is that a family. We are God's family, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians four ten. All those who are trusting in Jesus are described as in the family. In fact, if you're here this morning checking out the claims of Christ, this is a great place to ask your questions. Welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're not yet trusting in Christ, if you've not said yet to God, I want to be a part of your family, do that this morning. We would urge you to do that. You can do that right where you're seated just by talking to your creator and saying, I want to trust in the one who makes us holy. I want to trust in the one who makes us brothers and sisters to God, who brings us into the family. That is Christ. Christ makes us holy through his death and resurrection. And you'll be brought into the family right where you're seated. In fact, if you have a desire to be brought into the family, it's an indication that God's already at work in your life, drawing you to himself, wanting to repair. As a matter of fact, whatever your experience was in your family of origin, wanting to draw you into the eternal realities of his family. All those who are trusting in Christ are described as in the family, sons and daughters of God the Father, brothers and sisters of Christ, Jesus, who is the Son of God, the firstborn over all creations, Paul writes in Colossians. And by first, it doesn't mean numerical first. It means the one who's given primacy. He's first over all those who are are born of women, right? He's the first among humanity. This language of family is not coincidental. It is intentional. I'd go so far as to say that we don't give God enough credit. We tend to think that God borrowed the metaphor of family to describe the relationships with him that he wants us to have, that he wants us to have with one another as well as brothers and sisters in Christ, in the family. We tend to think that New Testament writers borrowed this metaphor of family so that we can more easily understand the significance of our redemption. But what if? What if in God's brilliance, he designed earthly families from creation? What if in God's brilliance, He designed fathers and mothers, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, so that we would have a framework to better understand the relationships that are offered to us through faith in Jesus Christ's blood. What if in God's infinite wisdom, he created the family on day six of creation for the purpose of acting as a living, breathing example of the connection he wants to have with us? God is our father, Jesus is the son, Jesus is our brother. We collectively, this isn't coincidental, this is intentional, we collectively make up the bride. Just think of how our entry into God's family is described. It's described as a new birth. We enter our earthly family through biological birth, Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, you must be born again. We enter our eternal family through spiritual new birth. Might God have had the foresight to create these realities for the sake of our understanding? And what if by extension, keeping the fifth commandment is a means to celebrating our eternal connection with our heavenly Father? What if a primary reason or the primary motivator for keeping the fifth commandment has less to do with our earthly family and more to do with our eternal family. And I get it. Some of us had atrocious earthly family experiences. In fact, for some of us, the only thing we can glean from our experience in our earthly family is how different God's family must be by necessity. For some of us, all that we learn from our earthly family is is the opposite of all that is promised for us in our eternal family relationships. But the sin in our earthly families notwithstanding, certainly one of the reasons we're to keep the fifth commandment is to acknowledge that the earthly family is only a microcosm of the macro-reality that God has provided for us through faith in Christ. Even if we had the worst family experience possible, even if the pain we feel as a result of that experience is because we we are hardwired for family. You see, I'd go so far as to say the pain of the earthly families due to sin, if it should do anything, it should give us a hope for our eternal family. We are hardwired to long for our earthly families' connection with father and mother and brother and sisters. We're hardwired, in fact, for those relationships to fuel our worship. And when they don't, when they don't, it should drive us to a hope for something greater When they do, they point us to God in faith in Christ. Our worship-filled activities should be spurred on by our earthly families. But if that's not your experience, then use the pain of that. Let the pain of that drive you to trust in Jesus, who is the Son of God, who provides for you a connection that is eternal with your Father, A a perfect heavenly Father. Make sure, make sure to make the most of sin. Let it drive you to Christ in the dependence on him. Paul restates the command in the book of Ephesians. He says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment of The promise. and Then he tweaks it a little. He says, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. It's interesting that Paul notes this For me, because no one in this room knows the Old Testament as well as Paul knew the Old Testament. He was steeped in the Old Testament, first century reality for him. A Pharisee of Pharisees had memorized the first five books of our Bible. He would have had them memorized as a child. He's steeped in the Old Testament, and he brings up the fifth commandment. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Remember, the first time the commandment's given is Exodus chapter 20. Moses comes down off. Sinai has the two tablets. Forty years later, and this is no small matter, 40 years later, Moses reiterates the commandment. Honor your father and mother so that it'll go well with you in the land. The interesting thing is that Paul brings it up. And Paul knew perfectly, just as those on the edge of the Jordan in Deuteronomy 5, knew perfectly. Honor their father and mother. Why had they been delayed for 40 years getting into the promised land? Because of the sin of their fathers and mothers. So if this morning you feel that you're not been a great father or that you didn't have a great father, Or that the parenting experience in your home isn't ideal or wasn't ideal for you as a child. That's nothing new in biblical history. As Moses restates the commandment, Israel stands at the Jordan River in Deuteronomy 5, ready to cross over in the land. And he says to them, honor your mother and father so that it's going to go well for you. And they would be keenly aware of the fact that it was their mothers and fathers who sinned and caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. What exactly are we honoring? An entire generation of faithless and foolish parents had died in the wilderness because of their sinfulness, yet God, yet Moses says, and Paul restates it, honor them. Why? Well, it's not because the Israelites' parents were their greatest hope. No, this is vital. The fifth commandment is given not as a directive to affirm our parents' abilities, but rather as an affirmation of God's ability to deliver his promises to us despite the sinfulness of our parents. Are you following this? Honoring our parents is a means to demonstrating faith in God's greater grace. If we believe that God knows what it takes for us, for it to go well with us and for us to enjoy a long life on the earth, then we will honor our parents as an expression, not of their perfection, not of their godliness, maybe they're godly, but of his, his, an affirmation that he's greater than all of our sin. Here's my final thought. Keeping the fifth commandment, is a means to demonstrating our faith that God's greater. God's grace is greater than all our sin. This is good news for parents and kids alike. We're to honor our mothers and fathers because the role was designed by God. Family was his idea. We're to honor our fathers and mothers because the design of God was that fathers and mothers would spur us on to worship. But if that didn't happen, we are to honor fathers and mothers because our heavenly Father's grace is greater than all our sin, all our collective sin as parents and children. Folks, this takes the burden off us as parents. Realizing this command was given in the face of 40 years of failure, then Paul restates it. And Israel had rejected the Messiah at that point. And he restates it. God's grace is greater. We can honor our fathers and mothers, whether or not they fueled worship in our lives or undermined worship in our lives, because God is greater. He's a perfect heavenly father who knows exactly what we need for it to go well with us in the world. And he's caring for us in his goodness and grace. This takes the burden off of parents. It's not permission to go on sinning, but it's the easy yoke and the light burden that God is greater than our shortcomings as parents. And it takes the burden off of us as children, particularly if we had less than ideal families of origin that we're not held back by our parents. No, God has intervened. He sent his son to care for us, to make us brothers and sisters with Christ, to pour out his blessings on us and to lavish his love on us. Why keep the fifth commandment? We keep the fifth commandment as an affirmation that God's grace is greater than all our sin. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we pray for your goodness to us now as we close. Well, I pray for the easy yoke and the light burden of faith in our lives. I pray that we would forgive our parents, where they let us down, where their sin impacted us negatively. And I pray, Father, that as parents who are inevitably imperfect, that we would bask in the grace, given us in Christ. And we would depend on that grace and we would point our kids towards faith in Christ, not faith in us. We pray this for the glory of your son and the good of your people. Amen.